give the praise band a hand. That was awesome. Very good. Very good. Shelly, why don't you come up here for us? I guess you can go around the piano, turn left, come about 50 yards this way and turn right. <laughs> Have a lot of stuff to work your way around here this morning. So this is Shelly, and this is her husband, Elvis. And their last name is not Presley, though. Okay. So what is your last name? I forgot. Rivera. Rivera. Okay, cool. That's even better than Presley. And so she's going to read the scripture for us this morning. It'll be on the back screen right there. And so y'all can follow along on the screens with us. We're going to read a lot of scriptures this morning, but that's a good thing, right? Amen. Amen. So here we go, Miss Shelley, whenever you are ready. No, no problem. And if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 4, uh, or you can follow along on your device, and we'll read as Shelley reads the Word of God for us. Oh, let me get you a microphone. I apologize. My bad. Hey, it's, it's, it's my first Sunday. Give me a break, okay? <laughs> and is it on? Is it good? All right, cool. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soul. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts up and grows. How he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are gone upon the soil, yet when it is sown, grows up and becomes larger than the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under the shade. And when many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And leaving the multitude, they took him along with them, just as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they awoke him said, and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, Why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? And they became very afraid and said to one another, Who then is this 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right. Thank you for reading that for that, Shelly. We appreciate that. So last week, uh, for those of you who are new, we went over the parable, what's commonly called the parable of the sower. Um, sometimes it's called the parable of the seed. Uh, more accurately, it's probably called the parable of the soils because that's what's changing in each situation. And the field is the world. The sower is Christ, sowing his seed through us, his church. And the, the, the seed itself is what? It's the word of God. And that's what people need, amen? People need the word of God. Lives do not change permanently without the word of God. The soil is the, the heart of man. The different kinds of soil, there's technically six because there's, there, we, we talked about that there are, is a hardened soil that people have walked on. It's on the beaten path. There's the rocky soil, which when there's persecution, they tend to go away. The thorny sto- soil is where the weeds sprang up and choked and where people get distracted. And then there was three types of good soil that brought forth 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. That was from last week. So basically, Mark chapter 4 is about soils, seeds, and storms. And when we get into Mark chapter 5 next week, we'll be about swine, where Jesus cast the, the demons into the pigs. But we'll talk about that next week. Jesus says about the kingdom of God that it's as if a mansion scatters seed on the ground. So he's staying with this whole seed idea. Well, the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is the kingdom of God? Well, it all depends on which context of where it's talking about in the Bible. Sometimes, like in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the kingdom of God is that God is in control of everything, of the whole entire universe. There isn't a planet, a moon, or a star that was made without him making it, and he's over everything. But then Jesus talks about it in a New Testament sense where the kingdom of God is his rule and reign on this earth over his people. There are people outside the kingdom of God who are lost and don't know Jesus, and there's people in the kingdom of God who do know Christ, and when God rules in the hearts of his people, that's the kingdom of God here and now. But there's also a sense in which the kingdom of God is future. Jesus said, when they said, teach us to pray, he said what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That we're praying for the the visible, physical kingdom of God on this earth to come, where he rules and reigns for a thousand years. And so in this sense, he's talking about the kingdom of God ruling amongst God's people. And we need to understand from a doctrinal standpoint that the kingdom of God is different and distinct from the church of God. The kingdom of God is different from the, the church of God. The church of God is his local visible body, like we're here this morning. Church means assembly. When we assemble together, we're God's people. But God's kingdom is broader than just the ch- church. But here's how God spreads his kingdom, through churches. Through Bible-believing churches that are sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is how the kingdom of God is spread. Now, he says that this, this kingdom, it's like a guy who's a farmer, and think about being a farmer 2,000 years ago where you don't maybe understand all the science involved. You know you get a handful of these things, you throw them on the ground, you go to bed. <laughs> Your job is done. Who sends the rain? Yeah, who, who put the sun in the sky? Who causes that hard thing that seems like it wouldn't have any life in it whatsoever all of a sudden to spring up and, and shoot forth and roots go down and the, and the stem goes up towards the sun? 
How does the plant know even which way to face towards the sun? You ever seen a flower turn during the day and face the sun? And it doesn't even have a brain, but God created to do it. All you did was put the seed in the ground. And you know, if that's a picture of us sharing Jesus, don't get all worked up and anxious. Well, what if they don't believe this? And what if, what if they disagree with me on that? What if they believe in evolution? What if they are, don't worry about that. You cast the seed. God's the one who gives the increase. You go to bed and pray for them, and God will work in the heart. And it says right there, this farmer, he doesn't know how all that works. And do you know how it all works? I don't. You know, even people who have a degree in agriculture can't explain all that God does through the science of, of the seed. It says, the earth produces it by itself. God takes care of the seed. Your, your job is to sow the seed and scatter the word of God, which people need. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, I planted, okay, he went around scattering the seed, but some other guy named Apollos came and watered the seed, but who gave the increase? God gave the increase. You know what? I'm looking at this verse and seeing what God is doing here in this church today. And we could, we could replace that. It could say, stand planted, Gary watered, but who gives the increase? God does, right? We, we could keep change, We could play with this verse all day. Pat planted, Amanda waters, right? But who gives the increase, right? It just, we, could, it, we are a team. We're working together. You may tell someone about Christ, and I may be able to get to preach to them, and they get saved. I may tell someone about Christ, and you may have them over dinner, and they get saved. We work together. Somebody plants, somebody waters, but it's always about God doing his work. And here's the thing. We need to trust God to do what he does. You see, we think we have to convince people to be saved. The Holy Spirit does a work in their heart as we get them saved. I've seen people, and you probably have too, you thought no way in the world would they ever become a Christian. No way. They were so far away from God, and next thing you know, Boom, they're in church and they're trusting Christ as Savior. Like, wow, how did that happen? God happened. God is what happened, and, and we need to trust him to do his work. Don't say, oh, I'm not going to talk to them about the Lord, because they would never get saved. You know, some of the people that seem the hardest are that way because they're wrestling with God. They're really having a hard time with God. That's why they're fighting him harder. It's the people that are living cushy, and they got life by the by the tail, and they think everything's fine, that sometimes they're farther from God than the hard person who's had a difficult life. He says in verse 7, so neither he who plants, that's us, or he who waters, that's also us, we're, we're not anything. Look at your neighbor and say, I'm nothing. <laughs> that's the truth. It's only God that gives the growth. God gives the growth. We got to be faithful to plant the seed. So we could say Manuel planted and Elvis watered, right? We could do that. Okay, and it, but God gives the increase. There's many different ways we can look at this. So he who plants, read this verse with me. He who plants and he who waters are one. Look around you this morning and say, we are one. Yeah, God has done a miracle here, bringing these two bodies of Christ together to become one church, and it's all God's doing, and he is, he is amazing. And I, I'm just blown away by what God is doing here, not this morning, but he's been doing this for years. He's been working on this. Verse 29 says in Mark, when the grain is ripe, that means it's ready for harvest, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Jesus talked about this in, his, in another gospel in John chapter 4. And he told us to do this. Lift up your eyes and look. I tell you, see that the fields are white for harvest. 
when wheat is ready to be harvested, it, it, it turns white. And you'll see a whole field turn white. And that tells God is saying, hey, dummy farmer, it's time to put the sickle in. It's time to reap the harvest. And the harvest is coming. The harvest is usually a picture of the judgment of God. When God sends it forth as angels to bring judgment upon the world. And we need to realize that could happen tomorrow. That could happen next week. We need to get busy scattering seed. We need to get busy sharing the love of Jesus Christ. And, says, and he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Okay, what, what analogy do you want me to use, he's saying. He said, for, or for what parable shall we use for it? Jesus spoke in parables often. And says, and it's like a grain of mustard seed. How many have ever held a grain of mustard seed? It's teeny tiny, okay? Like I, you think of like poppy seed chicken, like poppy seed, it's even smaller than that. And when you even put that little teeny tiny seed, and I think, how could God put all the genetic information and all the code for DNA in this little tiny thing? Amen. He does it, though. It's one of the smallest seeds on earth, and when he puts it in the ground, it grows, and it grows up and it becomes larger than many of the other garden plants and puts out larger branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So get this, the kingdom of God is the mustard seed. It starts off small. How many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve. And he invested three and a half years in training those twelve. One of them decided to hang out somewhere else and do his own thing. But the other eleven, they turned the world upside down. Just a tiny, teeny, weeny group. Jesus didn't start with a big conference at NRG Stadium with 70,000 people. Started with those. He invested time in them. And you know, we can start small and let God through, through faith grow things. But look how big this mustard tree is right here. And what's fascinating, it says, and the birds of the air. Now, when you go through your Bible and you read, especially in Daniel and other places, birds are negative. Birds are bad. Who plucked up the seed? The birds did. And it's compared that to Satan. So what he's saying is the kingdom of God worldwide has birds hanging out in it. And they're benefiting from it. You know that lost people benefit from hanging out amongst a Christian society? Did you know America is better for the world because we were founded on biblical principles? Man, have we gotten far away or what? We are so far away from what the founding fathers meant for our nation. But you know, even the goodness we're still experiencing is because of the kingdom of God and lost people benefit from it. I want you to just think for just a moment the impact that Christianity has had on the world, okay? Jesus gave all the other religions a, a few thousand year head start. There was Judaism, okay? Ju Christianity is the completion of Judaism. But all these others got, you know, a head start. And yet, look what, look what Christianity did in a short amount of time. Did you know orphanages did not exist and hospitals did not exist until Christianity. When Jesus said to care for the widows and orphans and the poor, Christians took that serious. And the first hospitals and orphanages were started by Christians. Colleges and universities were started by Christians. Princeton, Harvard, Yale, Oxford, still the top schools in the world were started to train pastors and missionaries to spread the gospel. Man, they've come a long way from, away from the gospel, haven't they? But th it was started by Christians. Um, the ending of the slave trade, as we know it, was fought by William Wilberforce and many other pastors in England and the United States. Prison reform, to treat prisoners humanely and not to torture them, was start with, those laws were passed by Christians, 
Not by Muslims, not by Buddhists, not by Shintoism or Taoism. Christianity took care of these laws. Homeless shelters and charities all around the world. It's not the International Red Crescent. It's the International Red Cross. Okay? You know who comes to your aid when there's a tsunami or an earthquake or a flood? It's Christians all around the world that are giving their money by the billions to help the world, to help people who do not even know Christ and, and they just, and who are, no matter what they believe. Disaster relief and humanitarian aid, it's, it's all around the world. You look at Samaritan's Purse and all kinds of organizations like that. They're just donating millions and billions to help people. You know who's leading the charge in fighting sex trafficking and human trafficking? It's Christians. It's Christians. In fact, I just read just yesterday in Nigeria, a Christian church out in the northeast corner of Nigeria was surrounded by a bunch of Muslim terrorists, and they shot one and killed them and kidnapped 60 people and took them hostages. And you see that happening all around the world, and I bet you didn't even hear about it on the news. But we have 60 brothers and sisters right now that are being held hostage just because they believe in Jesus. And what has Christianity done for the world? We feed the poor. We help. We help with hurricane relief. We try to stop human sex trafficking. And yet, you see no other religion has had the impact. Promoting adoption and fighting abortion. Who's leading the charge on that? Christians are. Trying to save the, the most vulnerable people in the whole world, the unborn. And then... The greatest scientists of the world, Sir Isaac Newton, George Washington Carver, um, Nightingale, what's her first name? Florence Nightingale, thank you. Uh, even the guy who cracked the human genome in our lifetime, all of them Christians. And yet they'll say, oh, well, there's science and there's faith. No, they don't contradict one another. The Bible is extremely scientific. And you look at the, the impact that Christianity has made on the world. Jesus prophesied. He said, it'll start off small like a mustard seed. But it'll be the biggest tree in the whole garden, and birds will benefit from the shade and the fruit of the tree. That's what Jesus prophesied. Christianity has made an impact on the world. My question for us is, are you making an impact on your world? In your neighborhood, are you shade for the birds to dwell in? In, in, in your school, at where you work, are you making an impact for Christ? And what could be the impact of this new church in this community? Do you realize there's 2,100 people live in Brookside Village? There's three churches. A Catholic church, a Spanish-speaking church, and us. 2,100 people. And they're either all leaving to go to church somewhere else, or they're not going to church. I believe God is doing what he's doing right now for such a time as this. For us to have an impact on this community. So, Amen. On verse 35, it says, on that day, okay, uh, when evening had come, he said to them to the other. Now, what was that day? Think about what G all that Jesus has done. He got up early. He taught all day. He was healing the sick. In the, and in, all, in the middle of all his ministry, what does his family do? They're like, um, Jesus, come here, can we, can we talk to you? It says they wanted to seize him because they thought he was out of his mind. Now, we we. You look at that, that, that's a really peculiar situation. But can you imagine that Jesus, yes, was he 100% God? But was he also 100% man? Did he feel hurt and rejection and pain? Imagine your, your mom, your brothers, and your sisters saying, Jesus, we think you're crazy. You need to quit the ministry and just come home so we can get you better. Right in the middle of all that you're doing. 
you know, you think mom and everybody would be like, hey, good job, Jesus, way to go. And they're like, no, Jesus, you're losing your mind. You need to come home. I'm sure that was a sinking feeling in Jesus, and he was already tired. He's been doing this all day. And it says that when it got dark, instead of getting out of the boat, he just sat where he was, and they took Jesus just as he was. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, why don't you go home and take a nap or go clean up a little bit or change clothes, get out of your rabbi clothes. You know, no, Jesus, it just says they took him just as he was in that situation. And then, and then he said, let us go across to the other side. Let us go across to the other side. Now, what was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee? Sea of Galilee is 13 miles by 8 miles. Not a very big sea, but it's one of the most flourishing seas in all the world for fish. But the Jews were on the western bank, and who was on the other side? The Gentiles, the Samaritans, and all the people that you just don't want to be around. And Jesus says, hey, let's go there. Well, the disciples are probably like, what? Jesus, look at all. You've got thousands of people just, just thinking you're the greatest thing, thing since sliced bread. They just want you to perform miracles and do all kinds of stuff. And Jesus is like, no, let's go to the other side. Let me ask you something. What, what's the other side in your world where people don't want to take the gospel? You know, it's funny that uh, church planning is such a big thing in, in America today. But a lot, of the, a lot of guys I know that want to church plants, plant churches, you know where they want to plant them? In the rich white suburbs where the money's at. You know, we need to take the gospel to the other side. We need to be a church that's for the black, the Hispanic, the white, the Asian, for everybody, no matter what side of the tracks they're on. Brookside Village is such an interesting town. You've got some homes that are worth half a million dollars, easy, and then you've got three trailer parks. You've got quite a spread here. And which are we going to pick and choose who we're going to take the gospel to? Absolutely not. We're going to be taking the gospel to all sides of this town. It says, in leaving the crowd, they took him in the boat just as he was, just tired and all. And, and there was other boats. You know, every movie and every show you see picture in this scene here, you know, where the storm is coming, spoiler alert, uh, we just pictured this one boat. Jesus had a regalia. There were several boats because he had several hundred followers, and they were all going to sail with him. Remember, there was the disciples, capital D, but Jesus had many disciples, you know, and of course in Pentecost there was 120, so there could have been 120 people in, on all these different boats. And so here's the Sea of Galilee. Man, it is a, a beautiful place for weather, and it can be the worst place in the world for weather. Because of the mountains always generating the cold because of the altitude, but then because of the sea level being so low, the water being super warm, you know how hurricanes form, right? Warm water, steaming up, mixing with cold air, and man, a storm could come up at the Sea of Galilee quickly. So this isn't just some myth or legend here. Storms still happen on the Sea of Galilee, and so we have a storm coming. Just a couple years ago, they found this. It's called the Jesus Boat. We don't know for sure it was the boat that Jesus was in. But it's very much like, it was so much like it that that's why they call it the Jesus Boat. It was really fascinating. You can read about it. An archaeologist found a nail in the Sea of Galilee that was obviously super old. And he's like, wait a minute, what is a nail doing down here? You don't fish with nails. So somebody must have built a boat. So they kept searching until they found this boat. And they pumped styrofoam down below it and in it to protect it, and it floated up to the top, and then they retrieved it. Really cool. So they, they built a replica that looks just like this, and so this is very much like what Jesus probably was in. It had a sail, it had oars, and approximately 15 people could be in this boat. 
So how many other boats were sailing across the sea with Jesus at the same time? We don't know. And it says, and a great windstorm arose. And the Greek word here means the same word we would use for gale forces. So you're, Lauren Caden here, raise your hand. He's a sea captain, okay? So we're talking 70 mile per hour winds at sea. Does that sound like something you would be in, Captain Crunch? No, I don't think so, okay? Um, and this was, a, this was no small storm. This, this was something with very fierce winds. And this is what scared fishermen because they could be out there fishing. And just out of nowhere, the weather could change at a moment's notice. And this time, it definitely did. And it says, but he was in the stern. I, I want to show you something I learned this week. And I, maybe you have never seen this. Some translations say he was in the bottom of the boat like there was a lower deck. It's not a good translation. Okay, There's no lower deck to that boat as you can see. It means he was in, in the, the, the stern, the rear part of the boat, and that's where he was at. And he was asleep. And watch the language here. This is important. On a cushion? No, on the cushion. This was a specific cushion. At the stern of the boat where they would steer with the rudder, they built in a leather cushion for the captain to put his knee on and to steer. And so get the irony of the situation. Jesus decides to take a nap where the captain should be sitting. I think he's subtly saying, hey, I'm the captain. I can even steer this boat when I'm asleep. That's how good I am. I can steer the boat in my sleep in this situation. So Jesus is asleep. But think about that. The deity of Christ is just one of the most mind-blowing things we could ever read about. That God became human flesh, just like 1 Timothy 3 tells us. We don't doubt that at all. We don't believe like some heretics believe in New Age teachers that Jesus ascended to his deity or he finally grew so self-aware that he became deity. No, that's why the angel said, born unto you this day in the city of Bethlehem is Christ the Lord. He was born Christ the Lord. He was preexistent. John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning of time, there was God. And then it says in verse 14, and the Word, Jesus Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. 100% God who created the universe, and now he's a baby in Bethlehem. If that doesn't blow in your mind, I don't know what does. But here's the thing. It's true. And so therefore, Jesus is tired. Jesus needs sleep. Jesus has all these reasons. Number one, he, he is fully human. So don't ever forget that because atheists will say, well, what's the big deal about Jesus dying on the cross? He's God. He can endure anything. Yeah, he's God, but he's also, he, what did the Bible say? He, he let go of his deity to become fully human to suffer as much pain as any of you would feel. So he felt everything. So he's physically drained. He's totally exhausted, okay? I know when I preach for, you know, I only preach like 15 minutes, but I have preached maybe like 15, maybe sometimes I go along like 35 minutes, and, and it's draining. Imagine teaching all day. And imagine healing people. Remember, Jesus is human, and when he healed the woman with, with the issue of blood, what happened? He said, I felt virtue leave me, like energy like is leaving me. It literally drained Jesus to do this all day. In fact, we read it last week in the beginning of the chapter, it says that, that there was such a crowd they couldn't even eat dinner. So now he hasn't even been able to keep up his nutrition. He's tired. He's exhausted. He's physically drained. He's emotionally drained because his family just you know, dissed him on all he was doing. He, he, uh, he, and he now he's thinking, you guys are the fishermen. You're running the boat. I'm going to take a nap. 
and Jesus is taking a nap in the boat. And so the storm comes up, and they're doing their best. They probably brought the sail down. They probably tried to row against it. And, of course, Jesus is sleeping in the captain's seat, but they don't want to wake him. So, like, man, it would help if Jesus would help us. He's sitting right there in the captain's thing on the cushion. And, and then they finally, they get so frustrated. They say, teacher, do you not even care that we're perishing? You ever been there? Where so much is going on in life, and you're hurting and friends are dying, and things are happening you just can't explain, and you want to just say, Jesus, do you not care? There's nothing wrong with that, okay? Here's where you want to be careful, is when you turn that question into a statement. Jesus, you don't care. That's when it gets rough. But God doesn't mind our questions. He's written a whole 150 chapters of Psalms that ask questions like, God, where are you? God, are you asleep? God, do you, do you not see your people suffering? I was just reading Psalm 79 this morning and talk about they, they take your people and they kill them. They don't even bury them. Then they're food for the vultures. And I think about Christians in the Sudan and in Ethiopia. They're being persecuted and being killed just because of the name of Christ, not even getting proper burial. And you wonder sometimes, Jesus, do you not care? Let me, let me tell you, let me give you some words of advice for that. There's two things you really need when you feel like Jesus doesn't care. Number one, you need God's word. You need God's word more than ever before. Don't let the discouragement of life make you farther from the Bible. Let it get you more into the Bible so the word of God gets into you. Okay? You need to be with God's word. Number two, you need to be with God's people. You need to be with God's people. I've seen it happen so many times when people get discouraged, they get down, they get depressed, and you know what they do? They stop coming to church when you need to be in church more than ever. Satan will whisper in your ear, oh, well, just stay home, leave the lights out, and just sulk and pout in the dark. That's the worst thing you could ever do. I don't care if you believe in God or not. Psychologists will tell you that's the worst thing you ever do. You need to be with God's people. You need to be around people. You need to socialize because you will draw strength. There's been times that I, I've been down and discouraged and just going to life group and just being pulled up by my brothers and sisters and just talking about what the good things God's, God is doing and it reminds me of all that God promised us. And you've got to remember God's promises and be with God's people. It's interesting, when they, here's what they said. So in Matthew 8, he tells the same story and they said, save us, Lord, we're perishing. They said it more like a prayer. In Luke, it says, Master, Master, we're perishing. It wasn't like a prayer, just like a statement of information. Hey, by the way, Jesus, we're, we're dying. Uh, in Mark, though, he says, Teacher, do you not care? Now, some people would look at this and say, Wait a minute, which one's right? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? Well, back in, uh, golly, was it 1997, I believe, I was in a really bad car accident. I had my son Lance with me in the passenger seat. I was driving my silvery blue 1988 Nissan Maxima. Anybody remember that one, the boxy-shaped one? And so we were picking up a couple of his friends, um, Aaron Beesman and Dustin Grimes, his two best friends from school. And so I went and picked them up, and we were heading back to our house in Lake Jackson, and we're driving across Oyster Creek, which I think is, what is that, 527, I think? Anyway, it's a four-lane road. Two lanes in each direction, and we're coming down there doing the speed limit, about 40-ish, I guess. And this lady decides she's going to cross all four lanes of the road at the same time to get to the other side. Well, she made three out of four, and I T-boned her on the fourth lane. She didn't clear it. And I, I, there was a truck next to me 
So I, it was a blind spot. So all of a sudden, from me to Patrick, there's the car. And I'm doing 40. And she's right there. Now, I said, hold on. Isaiah said, oh, God. <laughs> Aaron Beesman said, mommy. <laughs> I think, I don't know. And just, Dustin said something I can't repeat and get him his mom in trouble with his mom. Anyway, but we all said something different when we were in a crisis. And there's 15 people in this boat probably, at least 12 disciples. Everybody's saying something different. And so if I record one thing that somebody said, or maybe they went through, maybe they went through stages. Maybe they say, hey, Jesus, I think we're going to die. Then they're like, hey, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And when Jesus doesn't do anything, like, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Can you see the escalation? There's no contradiction. Why do people do that and try to pick the Bible apart when we, we do the same things when we tell stories all the time? So it's ironic that Jesus trusted them enough to go to sleep in the boat. And probably knowing a storm was coming or could come, right? But they obviously didn't trust him to save them from the storm. Isn't that interesting that Jesus trusts us with stuff like, hey, go into all the world and preach the gospel. I'm going to heaven. See you in a couple thousand years. And he trusts us to get that job done. But then when we're in the storms of life, we, we don't trust him. How ironic that all that is. In verse 39 it says, and he awoke and rebuked the wind. I am so glad that that's what he did first. If it was Gary, I would have been like, what, you bunch of knuckleheads? Do you know who I am? I would have rebuked them first. But he rebuked the wind first. And this is the one who spoke the worlds into existence. This is the one who created wind. He, he, he spoke the stars, and they said, all he did was speak the words. And now he can rebuke the wind. And what did he say? Peace, be still. And it says that the wind ceased, and there was a, not just some calm, slowly go the way. No, great calm, boom. It was just like the birds are whistling again, and the, the sun's out again, and everything's calm. The water's placid, and it's like, Wow. It happened so fast that the, the, the disciples are like, this is crazy. Who is this guy? And so you look at the different things that Jesus rebuked in the Bible. You know who he rebuked more than anybody? Religious people. People who went to church every single Sunday had the biggest King James Bible in the world and dressed better than everybody and gave more money and offering plate. And Jesus said, you bunch of snakes and vipers. You're hypocrites. Well, Jesus, why don't you tell us what you really think, you know? I mean, Jesus was after, so you know what? I'm so glad that this is just people who are just everyday people. Just love God and just want to be together. Anybody in here perfect? Nope. Nope. Nobody here is perfect. Put your hand down. My, my, my grandson's back there. He's perfect. He's close to, no. Um, I don't want, I, I've been to churches like that where everybody puts on an air you ask him how they're doing, oh, great, I'm doing wonderful, everything's perfect. Next thing you know, they're, they're, his wife files for divorce. Like, I thought you were perfect. I thought you were super spiritual. I thought everything was great. Man, you know what? We need to be the body of Christ where we come together and we confess our faults one to another and we can just say, hey, I'm hurting, I need help. And we can just lay hands on each other right there and then, right in the middle of church, just, just pray for one another and just, just let the Holy Spirit do what he does. And not put on this pretense of, I'm, I'm looking, I'm so religious, I love Jesus more than anybody. He also rebuked the disciples. More than one time, he said, where's your faith? Where's your faith? He rebuked Peter, remember that? He said, hey, it's the will of God that the Son of Man suffer and die, be buried and raised again. And Peter's like, hey, Jesus, come here, let me tell you how this works. You're not going to, you don't need to die. 
You want to you, you want to kick the Roman Empire out? You can't. You got to drop this crucifixion talk. You need to, to live. Let's get up weapons, all stuff. And do you know what Jesus says? Get behind me, Satan. Jesus rebuked de- demons several times, and here Jesus rebukes the wind, the storm, and all of nature. He's showing that he truly is who he claimed to be, God in human flesh. He has power over all of creation and all God's people. So it's interesting that when Jesus commands demons, they leave. Remember that? When he commands the wind, it stops. But when he commands us, we're like, no, I've got other plans, God. Crazy. Demons listen to Jesus. The wind listens to Jesus. Why can't we? We just sang that, so will I. If the rocks cry out and praise you, so will I. That needs to be our, our prayer all week long. Is not my will, but yours be done. If demons and wind can obey Jesus, can God's people obey? Amen. So what's the primary point of this passage? Let me tell you, I, I will tell you I'm guilty when I've taught this in the past, that the primary point of this passage is whatever storm you're going through in life, Jesus is there with you. It's not, it's not the primary passage. It, it, it is a point. It is part of the passage. But he's... Um, let me go back to what you just said. The primary point of this passage is what the disciples asked afterwards. Who is this man that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus did all he did so that we would ask the question, who is Jesus? What would be your answer to that question this morning? You can't say, well, he's just a good teacher and a great moral example for us all. No, he claimed to be God. And if he's not, he's mentally deluded. Or he's a big liar. And those don't make good teachers. He either is, he either is God who created you and God who sees your sin and loves you anyway and loved you so much that he came down and took on human flesh and allowed us to pierce that flesh with nails after beating him viciously for hours, put a crown of thorn on his head and let him hang out in the sunlight for hours in dehydration, and he went all, through all that for you. That's who Jesus is. Your answer should be, Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, I owe all to him. That's the answer we're looking for. So is it true that Jesus is in the storms of life with you? Absolutely. But the first and foremost, he's God who created you, he owns you, he bought you. You owe all to Jesus, all to him I owe, is the point of the passage here. Have, it, it says, he says to them, why, why are you so afraid? Now think about this. When were the disciples afraid in this story previously? In the storm, right? And now Jesus is a, uses a different word, like why are you like totally frightened? What are the disciples more afraid of? The storm or what they've just realized that the holy God is in the boat with them? Isn't that amazing? They're like totally freaked out now. And it's tranquil everywhere. But they're like, who is this guy? Oh my gosh. And now they're really afraid. And you know what? When you come into the presence of a holy God and realize how powerful he is, your first reaction is fear. Think about that. What did, what did Isaiah said? He fell down like a dead man and said, I am a sinful man. Woe unto me. Let, let, let God's curses come upon you. I, I can't even stand to be in the presence of God because he's so holy. Remember the angels, just God's holy angels came into a room and people fell down like they were dead. 
So you, you, you'll hear these people on the radio or on television preaching, oh yeah, I had a talk with Jesus, and Jesus appeared in my room, and we just having a chat about how good the coffee is. I'm like, baloney. You'd be on your face if Jesus appeared in your room. You'd be scared to death. And that's what the response is. He, he says, you still have no faith. And verse 41 says, and they were filled with great fear. They had some fear of the storm. Now they've got off the charts fear when, Jesus is, when they realized who Jesus is. And they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You go back a little part in the story. And so when they're at their, you know, they're trying to manage the storm themselves and they realize they're losing control. Then they finally, as a last resort, appeal to Jesus and say, do you not care that we're perishing. The, the irony of this is he cared more than anybody in the universe. And we often will mix it up as if we really care when the truth is we don't. Because when Jesus is on the cross, did we care when, it, when he was perishing? Did anybody want to help? All his best friends scattered. And Jesus was the loneliest man in the whole entire universe. And he didn't deserve it at all. In fact, the one that he was closest to more than anybody else, his father, turned his back on him. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I haven't deserved any of this. Nobody's here. The only people here are mocking me and spitting on me. Did I deserve this? Did you care when I was perishing? And the disciples have the nerve to say, do you not care that we're perishing? And yet, just a couple years later, no, they wouldn't care when he really was perishing. You see, Jesus went through all this because he loved you. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men and women, all of them. Peter denied him three times. He was a man of sorrows. Here he's feeling sorrow when he hasn't done anything to be sorry about. He was acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. We treated Jesus like he was a homeless man at the intersection and we're just looking everywhere but at him. Just don't make any eye contact. And it says he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Jesus felt all that pain because of the pain you felt. Don't say Jesus doesn't care. He took all the things that hurt you most upon himself. And he carried our sorrows with him on his cross. And we esteemed him as stricken, smitten by God. People thought, well, he deserved it. God struck him down. God did strike him, but not for the reasons people thought. Verse 5 says, but he was pierced for whose transgressions? Say ours. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. That you get to sit here in peace this morning. Because he went through no peace on the cross. And with his wounds we are healed. The disciples said, who is this man? I ask you this morning the same questions. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning? If you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, and there's no doubt about it, please, I, I, I beg you to beg God to open minds and hearts this morning so that someone would trust Christ this morning. 
Maybe you're watching online and you're like, this is new to me. I don't understand this Jesus stuff. You can know Jesus personally this morning, whether you're inside this building or watching online. If you know for sure you're a sinner and you need a Savior, Jesus is the one who can bring you peace. If you'd like to trust Christ as your Savior, you need to reach out in faith and believe that he died for you, that he was buried and he literally rose again on the third day, and he's coming again in judgment, and you can trust him here and now. Maybe you could pray a prayer that goes something like this. The prayer doesn't save you. It's your faith, but it could be like this. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I thank you for dying on the cross for my sins, for all the things that I've done. I deserve to be on that cross, but you took my place, and I thank you for it. So therefore, I make you the Lord of my life. All decisions are yours. I trust you to save me, and I thank you for forgiving me. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. God is good. Um, If you made that decision to trust Christ this morning, I want you to contact me. I'd like to talk to you about your new steps as a new believer in Jesus Christ. Um, In just a moment, we're going to do question and answer. So Amanda, are you willing to help me with that? Bring your tissue with you, okay? Um, so text your, any questions you have. Now, if you don't want to text me, you just want to raise your hand, you definitely could do that, okay? And uh, I think we even have a way to, um, this one right here, is, that okay? is this okay? This is Amanda Avila and uh, her husband Charles over there. Um, let's see here. I don't, know if, I don't know if there's any yet. And so... Um, if you texted in a question, something we just realized, Nathan pointed out, is we don't have great phone reception here. It's possible you texted it and we haven't gotten it. So if you're in here and you, do you see any? Oh. Okay. So if you've texted it, we probably haven't got it because all I see is one response to a text this morning. And that's not a question, I don't think. Um, also, I think actually Luke had a question. Is that there? Okay, good. Just one question. Luke wants to know. This, Luke is how old? Uh, five? Five or six? And their family's sick this morning, so they're probably watching online. But Luke wants to know. Why Jesus is not physically walking around today? Man, that is, that is a great, great question, okay? So um, Jesus said that it's better for you that I go away and send the comforter to you. And you think, well, wait a minute, I could have Jesus here in person, or I could have the Holy Spirit. You know, we all would choose Jesus in person, right? But Jesus in person would be in the Middle East, and we'd all have to get on planes to go see him. But the Holy Spirit is right here, right here. And so he says it's better for you that the Spirit of Christ be in every single heart than Jesus being in one place. So that's why he did that, okay? Uh, but... The kingdom says that we'll have the best of both worlds. We'll have Jesus physically and in our hearts. Now, in the Old Testament, remember what it said about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit came upon Saul, but then left him. The Holy Spirit came on Samson, and then it left him. But in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit comes not on you, but in you to never leave ever again. And I'll take that every day. Over And, and so we walk by faith, not by sight. So... Um, that's, that's, that's the big part of that. Did any other one come in? Oh, good, good, really, okay. Really heavy one. Are there any plans forming to have a chosen Christmas special watch party? Mm-hmm. Several of you have already sent that to me. So 
December 1st and 2nd, which is a Wednesday and Thursday. First of all, let me back up. How many of you watched The Chosen? Okay. Man, I strongly recommend it. You can download the app or you can even watch on YouTube and you can just cast. It's all free and it is the best Christian films ever, bar none, period. They are so good. They're extremely accurate. Really, really good. But anyway, they've made a Christmas special. It's going to be in theaters December 1st and 2nd. Wednesday and Thursday, so we would think about probably going with the Thursday night and just everybody in the church go to, I think it's going to be Premier Cinema on the 2nd, here in, right down there in Pearland. So more details to come on that, but that, that's your heavy question, huh? Okay. And that was the last question. So. All right, anybody have one you want to raise your hand, maybe text it, but we didn't get it because of the reception? No, no questions? All right, cool. So band, come on up here.